Hello and welcome once again to Yesterladies. I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. And this week we're talking about... Sacagawea. Sacagawea or... Or... Sacagawea or Sacagawea. (laughs) There's a lot of discussion even still today among scholars about how exactly we're supposed to pronounce her name. So um, I guess it depends on which because she was we'll get into this of course but (laughs) she was born into a certain tribe and then um, kidnapped and raised uh, after that point in another tribe so it kind of depends on like which tribe you identify her with and it means different things to the different tribes and then um, it's been written differently through the historical record and I think we've kind of landed on we're just going to go with calling her Sacagawea because as uh, one source has pointed out currently most people spell her name with a with a G with the hard ga so Sacagawea but everybody pronounces it Sacagawea so just I guess to avoid too much confusion <laughs> and like us constantly back and forth about how to say her name throughout the podcast uh, we're just gonna go with Sacagawea that's how we we naturally pronounce it so yeah we're gonna stick with what I feel like natural to us exactly so we're not tripping ourselves up in the exactly. middle of the podcast for sure for your for your benefit for your dear listening listeners pleasure yeah. <laughs> oh boy all right so there's actually um not a whole lot really that we know about Sacagawea um so we're kind of going to get into some of the historical problems i guess that have that have arisen over the years with different people and different groups kind of um usually with excellent intentions kind of co-opting her for different purposes. And so her, her legend and her myth has kind of grown larger than can be actually supported by the facts that we have, which as I said, there aren't all that many of them really. Yeah, It's very bare bones. Exactly. So we basically, what we know about her comes more or less just from the journals of Lewis and Clark. Um, so I'm going to give you kind of the, the facts of Sacagawea and then Heather's going to go a little bit more into the historical, um, case and, and what has arisen about her over the years, which is kind of in and of itself an interesting history. Yes. There's some mystery. Did she die when she supposedly died or not? Mm -hmm. We will see. There's a lot happening. (laughs) So, um, we do know that she was born about... 1788 um a couple sources say a couple of different years around there but it seems as though scholars mostly stick with the 1788 date and she was born in uh, present-day ohio and she was the daughter of a shoshone chief um and i imagine that would have her family would have had a certain amount of standing in her originally original community. Unfortunately, when she was about 12, Sacagawea was kidnapped by um, an enemy tribe, the Hidatsas. And a lot of sources refer to the fact they say she was, she was kidnapped and enslaved and then later sold. Um, and as some sources have pointed out, that's kind of a... Um, That's looking at it from a certain kind of perspective. That's looking at it from the perspective that we have of kind of uh, slave 
owning in mm. the southern United States kind of during that period and later where we think of slavery as that institutional somebody is a slave they're always a slave they can be bought and sold with without their consent and I mean certainly this wasn't an ideal situation for her and I imagine she was not happy about it um, but people point out that in native cultures at that time um, slavery could be a more fluid construct so she may have been considered more adopted uh, taken in by the community and treated not as some kind of um, subservient um, lesser human and you know um, treated that way and perhaps more kind of accepted as a member of the community um, now it's still to me it seems like a pretty rough um, <laughs> rough go yeah, yeah a, a crappy thing to have happened to mm -hmm. you especially since whatever word you want to give it uh she was more or less sold as still quite a young girl to this 40 some odd year old uh french canadian trapper named toussaint charbonneau who uh really doesn't come off very well <laughs> <laughs> he's like the villain of the story a little bit <laughs> and i was really excited when i first came across him in the research before yeah. i learned anything i was like canadian yeah <laughs> like there's a canadian in the story and then I, the more i read it the more i was like oh he's this guy sucks crappy yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. he really is <laughs> her and another girl we should mention so they were Two, yes, he uh, had. Well, okay, so young gals. the Hidatsa at a certain point when she was in her, I don't know, maybe mid-teens or so, sold her, some records say they sold her as a slave um, to this guy. Uh, he took her as, we'll put in quotation marks, a wife, um, but this man had at least one other um, Native American woman who he had taken as a wife. Um, so this polygamous the uh, French Canadian fur trapper guy takes these two teenage girls basically mm -hmm. as his wives, which I have a note next to that fact in my, <laughs> and it just says bleh. Cause that is uh you. Yeah. It's not cool. It's um, oh, wow. disturbing and unfortunate yes. in a number of, yes. in a number of ways. However, more common it may have been in right. that time and place right. than Ex in our extremely society. Common. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. yeah. Unfortunately. And super creepy. Mm. Um. <laughs> so anyway, this uh, Toussaint takes her as his wife and they live among the Hidatsa and also the Mandan tribes in what is now North Dakota. And that's pretty much all that we know about her early life right up until the kind of the epoch or what we think of as the epoch of her life in uh, 1804 the famous core of discovery <laughs> <laughs> i really like that name and that's what they called themselves that i chuckled very much at that <laughs> it's like if if we were to start some like enterprising <laughs> troop of lady adventurers we would call ourselves the core of discovery <laughs> i feel like we have more of a or something humor better. than that yeah <laughs> but it would like, be ironic yeah ironic. <laughs> i don't be. think it was ironic for them. <laughs> they were in earnest yeah <laughs> which is great yeah so just to go a little bit into that um i know especially being canadian mm -hmm. we don't necessarily know as much about the lewis and clark expedition as um as some americans um so this was as i said this was right after the Louisiana Purchase, the famous Louisiana Purchase in the U.S., where the U.S. government basically expanded their territory 
like doubled it. Double, yeah. Um, bought this huge swath of land and basically we're like, what do we got here? <laughs> Let's go check out what <laughs> we just bought. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, they send off uh, two men in particular, uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, who were uh, old, I think they were old army buddies. Yes. And pretty and, young men at the time. Yes. They were in their 20s. Yeah. Like not yeah. even 30. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very young. So these two guys, they were the captains, the co-captains of the expedition. And they put together this troop of, I think there was another couple dozen men mm-hmm. um, with the purpose of going out and exploring this new territory and also hopefully finding a path uh, to the Pacific Ocean. So they wanted to explore the flora and the fauna and probably they figured they would be making contact with more uh, native groups Mm -hmm. and uh, kind of seeing what was out there. And as has been pointed out, really, I think as much as Lewis and Clark historians now kind of look of them, look on them as, as it's kind of biologists or um, botanists interested in, in more the, the, like I said, the flora and the fauna of this new territory. Uh, They, this expedition definitely did mark uh, some of the first, American expansionism, manifest destiny, all mm. of that kind of thing. And unfortunately led ultimately to, you know, the horrible treatment of Native American groups over the next <laughs> couple hundred years mm. right up to this day as as all of these groups were pushed further and further out of their territory and, and mm. you know, basically killed off and all sorts of awful things. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of represented as being almost like an ecological expedition, but it's really more colonial than... Yeah, uh, I guess it was kind or, of both, right? Yeah, yeah it would have been a combination. Because yeah. they I made... feel like Lewis and Clark themselves maybe didn't think of it as as colonial, but of course, uh, who knows? <laughs> it's complicated. Yes, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the core of the Discovery expedition arrives in the area where Sacagawea and her French-Canadian husband (laughs) were residing um, in November of 1804. So they arrive in the area with the intention of wintering uh, there, building a fort and kind of sticking around for a few months and then preparing to really set off in this expedition in the spring. Uh, so they built Fort Mandan and stayed for the winter. And during that period, they realized they would need interpreters, uh, for their journey as they were bound to meet all of these different native groups. So they hired, um, Charbonneau, uh, Sacagawea's husband as an interpreter. Uh, now what's interesting, do you have written down the whole, like, the, pa- the, the language path yeah. through? Yeah. So it <laughs> It was crazy. Um, the I was thinking about the levels of interpretation that this me- the messages would have gone through. I mean, to get any message clearly, it would be like a crazy game of telephone through like six you, different languages. Can you yeah. imagine yeah. how much was lost in translation? In translation, it, I can't even <laughs> speculate on that. It would be wild. So when they got into Shoshone territory and they needed Sacagawea to basically be the front piece, um, she would have spoken Shoshone with with whatever group they were with, she would have translated it to Hidatsa, which Charbonneau would understand. So she says this to her husband. Then he would have translated it into French. Then he would have spoken that in French to a member of the group who spoke French. And he would have translated it into English for Lewis and Clark. (laughs) So it goes through that's Shoshone, Hidatsa, French, English. Like you've got four languages there to get through before the message gets passed. Like, like, 
three or four people. Right. So, <laughs> exactly. It's like this terrible chain of, <laughs> I mean, it must have worked because yeah, they, to a certain they purchased extent. horses and, yeah. and didn't get lost and didn't that, get that killed. badly and were not yeah. murdered. Yeah. So cl- clearly it worked yeah. <laughs> even if it was a bare bones system, but I was laughing when I read that too. I was like, oh yeah. God. <laughs> you know, yeah. That really like... made me laugh. <laughs> this is quite the chain. <laughs> Let's work this through. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some modern equivalent of like, I'll translate it to Japanese and then you translate it into, uh, you know, I don't know, an Inuit language and then we'll translate it into Spanish. And then, and then... It really is like a, like a crappy game of telephone. <laughs> it's, it's like wonderful. Yeah. I also think of like how long it would take because one person would have to turn to the next and say the thing and then, yeah. and then you'd be waiting on the other end like for a response <laughs> to come back. It would be this terrible stilted conversation. So Actually, I just, I've been rewatching uh, Frasier. Oh dear. Good TV show. Anyway, it just reminds me there was an episode where like and they made much of it. The comedy was hilarious because like I don't know, somebody spoke Spanish and somebody had to translate that into French who then had to translate that into English and it was like this, you know, yeah, they're like the long pauses and it must have been a little bit I can imagine more than one person on this expedition kind of rolling their eyes every time yeah, they had like, to go oh, through this God. process. I mean, all of us get so annoyed at Skype slowdowns. Like, <laughs> this would have been like the ultimate Skype pause. Oh wait, well yeah. it translates through four languages. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that's skipping a little bit ahead. But anyway, yeah. so um Toussaint Charbonneau was hired as an interpreter and they realized that they would also need somebody to speak uh, Shoshone, which he didn't. So they chose Sacagawea above her sister wife, I guess mm. you would call her. Yep. Um, even though she was quite pregnant and about to give birth and they knew that taking her along would mean taking an infant along. Mm. So uh, a couple of the sources that we've we've read for this episode pointed out that that must have meant that she was uh, pretty well-spoken and impressive because to put up with the screaming infant <laughs> <laughs> for like a year yeah. on this track instead yeah. of, you know, going with the, the woman who was not about to give birth, right. Um, might've uh, spoken to mm. uh, as character and her soft skills. Yeah. Her <laughs> yeah. soft skills. Soft exactly. Skills. Those all important soft skills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So before the expedition set out in February 1805, Sacagawea's son was born, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. I love these babies with the French Canadian names. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. So, and they left not very long after that. And I, a couple of different dates I saw. So I'm just going to say they left in the spring of 1805, whether it was May or April or when. So Jean-Baptiste would have been just a few months old at most. So she's traveling with this newborn strapped to her back, which is a very classic uh, kind of stereotypical image that we have mm-hmm. of Sacagawea. I think that that's even the image on the... Um, the gold coin that the U.S. minted some right. years ago. Uh, they include Jean-Baptiste on his mother's <laughs> back. This great detail of her trekking across these many, many, many miles with this newborn. This infant in a backboard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little papoose. <laughs> a little papoose, that's right. Uh, so they set off. And along the journey, um, as we'll go into, much has been made about Sacagawea's presence on this trip and and perhaps more has been made of it than actually was which is unfortunate because it it almost it feels like it kind of takes away from what 
she really did and what she really was, which was impressive enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you don't need to pump it up any further. No. People um, say, oh, she's a guide and an interpreter yeah. and all these other things. And and you're right. It, it cheapens the reality of, you know, she was a, a valuable and contributing member of this expedition. Yeah. She was a, me- so. uh, yeah. I think what we've seen has been blown into this, like, oh, she led them, right. you know, all this yes. way. And she like single handedly, single handedly, and she's like, baby. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. saved them from dangers and they were all idiots. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> except for Sacagawea. Yeah. bumbling white men in the woods and she's like oh, face palming and yeah. leading them the right way yeah. which i mean she probably was like oh rolling her eyes at these idiots but it seems like what was more the case was that she was a member of this team a right. very impressive member and she yeah. did impress both lewis and clark particularly clark mm-hmm. uh with her skill and her knowledge and her abilities and her cool-headedness yes but um, she, yeah, she wasn't at the forefront leading this expedition. They more or less, I think, knew where they were going and, and what they were doing. They weren't helpless. And she wasn't the only guide and she wasn't the only no. interpreter. No. But they needed her for her specific skill set in Shoshone territory. So exactly. she was very helpful there as well. Exactly. Yeah. So just to go over um, what she did on mm-hmm. this trip. So first of all, she was very skilled at finding edible plants, which mm. apparently helped very much, um, especially as food got scarce and I don't know what the hunting situation was like, but, mm. uh, she really helped supplement their diets in a major way. And I would imagine, you know, these men, maybe they would have just been living on meat <laughs> <laughs> and she was out finding like wild artichokes and things, and, like, which is super cool. Onion, wild onions and mushrooms yeah. and berries and stuff. So she's basically varying their diet exactly. for them. Giving them some vitamins. Seems like a very modern <laughs> female role still yeah. today. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, food collection was a very female role in mm-hmm. many native groups. So it made sense that she would be, that she would be knowledgeable as and- well. Yep. Right. Yeah. And at one point they were what eating their candles because they were made of animal oh, yeah. fat. So any extra calories her. she can bring in, <laughs> yeah. any member can bring in is going to be very helpful. Absolutely. So, and then another uh, big thing that she did early on was there was an incident uh, where one of the canoes holding a lot of apparently Lewis and Clark's very important documents and I would imagine maps and mm-hmm journals and who knows what uh, equipment even as well just tons of really important stuff was in this canoe and it capsized and started sinking and apparently uh charbonneau secretary's <laughs> husband was at the tiller kind of <laughs> of this boat and <laughs> was just utterly useless according to i think it was clark wrote in his yeah. journal the quote was like the least or the most timid waterman ever. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently he was just crying to God to save them. And just like, put, like couldn't lost figure out head. what to do. Lost his head entirely. He was supposed to take the rudder and everyone was shouting at him and eventually they had to shoot at him to try to remind <laughs> him to do his job. So he just completely lost his head. And Sobbing she, and wailing. <laughs> yes. And just useless. And she's calmly. Yeah. And all this time, Second yeah. is just calmly, like she sees things floating away and she's calmly rescuing them and like saves all of this stuff. And uh, Clark, you know, mentions later on, uh, really implies that she kind of saved the expedition here because if they had lost all of this stuff they they may have very well been quite screwed (laughs) all the documentation yeah even if they survived Mm -hmm. the record of the trip so much of it would have been lost and to try to replace that it would be almost impossible so exactly so So, historians and archivists everywhere can appreciate that she what she did yeah this portion of all the documentation well and again it shows us uh gives us a little bit of a glimpse into her personality clearly while her husband may have been fairly useless (laughs) (laughs) under pressure uh sacagawea was not she was cool-headed and level-headed and 
and for a teenage girl and and as was mm-hmm. pointed out nobody told her to do this she right. just saw what was happening and stepped up to the plate and i mean geez that is definitely the kind of person that you want yeah. on a trip like this with yes. you for sure yes. it's expeditionary behavior absolutely Hadfield would put it <laughs> <laughs> yes he would yes. oh he would like her he would like her <laughs> so um another important role that she played and this isn't so much um something she did as much as some something that she was but uh historians have pointed out that um Sacagawea and her infant would have really served as a symbol of peace on the expedition because the groups that they were encountering, all of these native tribes, may have been inclined to view this collection of white men as a threat and and view them as a war party or, mm-hmm. or looking to start a fight or take over or conquer or whatever. Um, but the fact that they had a woman and a woman with a baby with her, with them along on the trip would mean that they weren't looking to do that, that they weren't mm-hmm. out to start a war here. They really were just exploring. So just the fact that these groups could see her with them would mean a greater safety for them and less likelihood that they would be attacked or run into um, problems mm. with other people that they met along the way. So at a certain point, they do, of course, come across a Shoshone group. And uh, this is super cool <laughs> apparently um Sacagawea who uh Lewis or Clark or both of them wrote in their journals that she seemed to be a pretty um cool customer most of the time not super demonstrative or hysterical or <laughs> whatever else um like just broke out in excitement upon meeting this group and ran to the leader and embraced him and wept openly and it turns out that the leader of this group was her long-lost Shoshone brother uh now i hope i i looked up the pronunciation hopefully i get this uh right came came await came await and he was the chief of this group and she had this incredible family reunion just like what are the odds of that in this expedition and so through her and through her relationship with her her long lost brother uh they were able to negotiate and buy horses which they desperately needed for the rest of their trip Yes. And can you imagine the coincidence? Like I have in my notes, crazy coincidence, (laughs) exclamation mark, exclamation mark, because you're traveling across an entire continent. And while you are going through the territory of your, your former tribe or band, uh, the fact that you run into a group led by your, your brother who you haven't seen for at least a decade and you recognize him and you figure this out and how happy you would be to be back with your people who speak your language and your family that you haven't seen in so long and were forcibly taken from like that's nuts <laughs> yeah it is it's yeah. it's quite a yeah quite a story yes <laughs> so uh they bought their horses and the expedition pushed on and they finally reached the pacific coast in november 1805 and apparently they were um they built a fort there. And uh, one important detail, uh, Sacagawea, this speaks to how much they valued her and respected her unusually mm. at the mm. time, both being a woman and uh, a Native American woman among this group of, of European men. They respected her enough to allow her a vote on where they would build the fort. And it should also be pointed out that they gave that right to who's, which was Lewis or Clark's manservant, um, Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember which one. Do you remember his name? What was his name? No. Nope. Oh, shoot. Up. Oh, no, I feel terrible. Mm. <laughs> well, anyway, one or other of them had a manservant, a black, um, probably a slave, manservant along with him. And they gave him 
the right to cast a vote which is pretty incredible so mm, pretty interesting yeah pretty demographic yeah or, i'm sorry democratic group yeah he was now, the only person of color on the trip yes. we should mention so. well our um black person yes Sacha Weo is a person of color. Oh, that's true. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yay. <laughs> so two of them. <laughs> but, you know, as, as great as it was that they gave them each a vote and a voice in this circumstance, as should be pointed out later on, neither Sacagawea nor this manservant received any kind of compensation right. while the rest of the expedition certainly did, including her husband. But Sacagawea was not singled out <laughs> for mm. payment, which is unfortunate. Right. Anyway, so they build this fort and they're some ways away, I guess, from the Pacific coast. And at a certain point, news reaches them from other native groups in the area that there was a, a beached whale, a, a dead <laughs> whale. Woo-hoo! All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you'd like to see this, you should uh, you should go. So Lewis and Clark decide to mount a smaller expedition out of their expedition to go and see the beached whale and apparently also to get whale blubber, which would have been a, a major um help to them yes uh, i'm not sure what for exactly whether they were eating it or i don't know enough about expeditions <laughs> at the time <laughs> but probably my speculations would be cooking oil oh or, yeah and or candles and Perhaps. or eating so it yeah. probably served a number of purposes well, apparently it was ointment right yeah chafe would be a big uh, problem perhaps, yeah anyone who's, who's hiked would know that chafing chafe. would be a big issue so yeah. bug protection <laughs> i think you could use it for a lot of things yeah and we also wanted to see the ocean because at this well point, and this exactly yeah. so this was yeah. a, what i was going to say that mm. Um, Sacagawea was not going to be part of this group to go and apparently she really spoke up at this point and begged to be allowed to be taken along with her and basically made the point like it would be really sad for me to be taken on this expedition come all these thousands of miles yeah. away from my home and not actually get to see the Pacific Ocean <laughs> and also the dead whale yes. you know because <laughs> who doesn't want to see that I mean <laughs> it's pretty exciting right oh. we were laughing sort of mockingly but yeah. at the same time if somebody was like there's a beached whale at the Detroit River I'd be like oh, oh. I am going to see that right that now. would really be something a beached well. whale <laughs> the Detroit River it would be odd for a number of reasons yes but exciting and yes I would want to see it I would go down and see it <laughs> so Sacagawea was allowed to go and uh, see the Pacific Ocean and see the dead whale and uh, that's great I like I do like that image it's a romantic yes. image and it's portrayed in a number of ways over the years but I do like that image of her you know maybe waving a bit into the ocean and yeah what that maybe would have meant to her. Mm. Pretty cool. Yeah. So yes. they, um, after they've wintered. Um, Can I interrupt oh, here just to point out how many forts these people were building? Yeah, they were building just a lot of forts. Seemingly on a whim. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, they had to winter. Yeah, that not was on a whim. <laughs> yeah, but it was like, oh, winter's coming. We need some shelter. We'll build a fort. <laughs> and they did this back on the East Coast. They built yeah. Fort Mandan. And then they built uh, on the on the West Coast. Uh, what's the name of the fort there fort clatsop uh it seems i thought it was such a huge undertaking to yeah. build a fort and then here the loot just, building them everywhere. just building them right and left <laughs> as they cross the continent well, fort, so. perhaps uh um, maybe that's a very loose term yeah maybe it's just like 
small collection of wooden buildings surrounded by a palisade <laughs> well, i mean yeah. that's what a fort yeah is. i guess that's really that's true <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'm giving it more credibility but also i'm used to seeing stone forts right uh, sort of in the french style in in quebec were stuff, you picturing so. building stone forts? no <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no but but i'm thinking about how much work it would be even to build a wooden fort so i was just like in my notes like oh another fort built <laughs> like listing all the forts <laughs> there are a lot of forts it's true you're yes. right so forts play majorly into you, the story you think that alone would be a large accomplishment and they're just doing it on the side <laughs> exactly yes anyway so they build their fort they stay for the winter <laughs> and then they head back east and um one other thing that should be pointed out about this expedition is that um clark we know from his journals that he really took quite a liking to both sacagawea and her little boy um who he nicknamed pomp or pompey which i thought how sweet cute. is that? And um, later on, promised to educate him and take him under his wing. And um, a lot has been made, I guess, in, um, you know, when historical fiction has been has been written or created about this whole story. And I guess pretty often it's common that, um, as we pointed out, uh, Charbonneau was, is kind of tends to be cast as this bumbling kind of an ass actually because mm. there is at least one instance of Clark recording that he he was beating Sacagawea so mm. yeah really not a great guy and it seems as though Clark took it upon himself to protect her on a number of occasions and so much has been made and you know people like to see a romantic uh, storyline there that may or may not have been the case um, people say some historians that I was looking into were saying it may have been more likely that they viewed each other kind of in a brotherly sisterly kind of a way he was a big brother to her and um, had quite a lot of respect and affection for her which he also transferred to her son so uh, post expedition they get back um, and Sacagawea and Charbonneau settle once again into their lives and Lewis and Clark and their expedition they head back and are you know given all sorts of accolades by <laughs> the president and the government for their for their expedition and their service but um the little bit more that we know for sure about Sacagawea comes again from Clark's journals um and he invited Sacagawea and her husband and their their baby to travel to St. Louis to visit him in 1809 and they probably did although we're not 100% sure about that mm -hmm. and then a couple of years after that Sacagawea had a daughter Lisette and more than likely um her life ended soon after that unfortunately just a few years later in South Dakota around about 1812 she probably died at unfortunately like age 24 or 25 mm -hmm. which is yeah. um Super much young. too yeah. yeah and another thing that Clark kind of referred to more than once was that she her health was not great I guess she she was suffering from some kind of malady she had kind of a delicate um state of health throughout the trip and at least once I think on the trip she came down with a pretty rough illness um and so historians speculate that giving birth to her daughter may have exacerbated some kind of previous health condition and unfortunately she died of what was described by um one of the journals by somebody else kept it was probably her they were describing as a putrid fever mm -hmm. uh, which could mean any number of things but um so that's the very likely mm -hmm. ending to her story um just the facts i will just kind of mention that uh in the coming years clark would go on to 
pretty much adopt um, at the very least Sacagawea's son, um, Pomp or Pompey, <laughs> and educated him very well and ended up sending him off. He like traveled with a German prince is like traveling. Yeah. yeah, he went to like boarding schools and then was educated in Europe. So he had quite the uh, life. I know I really want to follow up on him and, yeah. and see what happened there. Very yeah. interesting. Now unfortunately we don't really know what happened to Lisette. And mm-hmm. to me it seems likely that she probably died very young as a little girl because mm-hmm. there's really like just nothing said of her in the historical record after this this who knows maybe she did grow up and marry and maybe there's some Mm -hmm. more descendants of Sacagawea out there (laughs) we don't know about but um it it, that's kind of up in the air Mm -hmm. um so she's kind of been made over the years into and uh, again like while Lewis and Clark were being very much celebrated immediately in the aftermath of the Corps of Discovery expedition (laughs) um Sacagawea was at that time certainly not given any kind of recognition or, yeah, or not, consideration not mentioned really no i mean yeah. she was in the journals mm-hmm. that were very quickly um kind of cut down and published which were very popular but uh she wasn't she wasn't some kind of national heroine right away mm-hmm. um that took some time it did it did <laughs> so it seems that later on um historians or academics or you know just people looking at the historical record um Usually with a need for some kind of female heroine or strong female character. Which or Native she, American. Or Native American. Figure. Uh, yes, figure. Uh, uh, seized on her as a character who could serve their purposes. Which, I mean, it's undeniable that she was a strong female Native American character. And, and she's fascinating. And mm-hmm. uh, um, But she there's a tendency for them to kind of use her image or use her story for their own purposes. And which, maybe exaggerate a yeah, little and, bit. And perhaps exaggerate, which kind of works against you know, the reality of her story. Um, And like Dana mentioned right at the beginning, this isn't always, these are usually good purposes, right? I mean, we're talking about suffragettes or we're talking about, uh, you know, native rights activists, this sort of thing. So um, movements that we usually get behind anyway. Yeah. (laughs) But um, because we do know so little about Sacagawea from the historical record, and I like that one writer was pointing out, it's always through a male storyteller or a male interpreter or recorder, right? We never mm-hmm. hear about her. No, we, her, her voice words. isn't recorded. Right. So, so we're only ever seeing her life through, through a male uh, viewpoint. And, uh, you know, and so because we know so little, it's easy to speculate. And so we don't know how much is truth after these bare bone facts. It's, it is rather easy to romanticize her. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, not everyone straps a baby to their back and walks across the <laughs> continent. So, <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so some examples of when this was happening. Um, so there was some controversy about whether she really did die in uh, 1812. Uh, there was a mention later the next year, 1813, about a raid on the fort. So if she hadn't died of illness, they were talking about perhaps typhoid fever, could have been that putrid fever, but I mean, I'm sure there are a number of putrid fevers out there. (laughs) So uh, if she hadn't died in 1812, there was a raid on the fort in 1813. Um, A whole bunch of people were killed, uh, but her daughter did survive and Charbonneau did survive. Um, But there was no mention of her afterwards. So they said, had she survived, she would have been listed as a survivor or she would have been listed as one of the casualties. So that leads some people to believe that she did die in 1812. However, there are a number of groups that have started to use her. So we'll start with one of the earliest. So the uh, suffragettes <laughs> get involved in Sacagawea's story um, and, and start sort of the first controversy about her life. Uh, so there was a woman in Oregon. Uh, her name was 
Ava Emery Dye, and she was president of the Oregon Equal Suffrage Association. And she basically needed, um, she needed a, she needed a heroine, a heroine, right? She needs someone to stick out in front and, and use as an example. Uh, so she purposely starts researching to find a female heroine and, uh, starts looking into the Lewis and Clark expeditions, finds Sacagawea, and basically has like a eureka moment. <laughs> and goes, ha, like, here is my woman. <laughs> and, uh, which is great. And I'd like to point out that a lot of the historical research she goes on to do is legitimate reclaiming of an authentic story that happened. Absolutely. So I was like, go, go Eva. Emory Dye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you mm-hmm. did, a, she did a lot of the groundwork that really got Sacagawea's name into the public and publicly recognized. So while she is doing this for her own purposes, it was good historical research that needed to happen anyway. So, mm-hmm. so this is great. Um, so in 1902, um, Ava published, quote, The Conquest, The True Story of Lewis and Clark. And she really played up Sacagawea's role um, in the expedition. Uh, so the entire suffragette movement kind of gets behind us and goes, all right, here's our here's banner. Like, yes, <laughs> this is our woman. And there was a huge Lewis and Clark centennial exposition uh, in 1905 planned in Portland, Oregon. And so they say, okay, this is our moment. So they fundraise. Um, they set up uh, a statue of her at this. Uh, Susan B. Anthony is brought in to give a big speech, right? Like they've got a heavy hitter yeah. coming into this expedition. So they really kind of... Um, uh, pump up her role in this, um, which I think we're like, okay, this is great. She, she does deserve a shout out. Um, but they're using her as an example of, okay, see women have been participating in American history for so long. And, uh, look at how long ago this was. And, you know, women have been well and earning their right to vote, uh, you know, for, for a long time. I think the idea that the, the, uh, Lewis and Clark expedition, um, was very important mm-hmm. historically mm-hmm. in the American, in the American story f- for positive or negative reasons, depending on how you look at it. Mm. Um, but it is a very important uh, element in the American story. And the fact that there was this very important woman taking part and that she was really in a lot of ways treated as an equal member by them, by Lewis and Clark on this expedition. I can see why the suffragettes, saw her as a great example of, okay, look at women have not just been sitting by the fire for a couple <laughs> Ten, hundred years in America. Yeah. Um, we have been participating. We have been doing important things. Mm-hmm. We have been mm-hmm. creating this country along with men and therefore we deserve the right to a say in its future. Right. And the loser Clark expedition was such an iconic American expansionist manifest destiny. You know, it's, it's just yeah. so like rugged and everything Americans you know, sort of love to believe about themselves. And, and then, okay, you're inserting this woman into it as she deserves to be, to be inserted. But she is a powerful yeah. image. I can definitely see right. why they, they, uh, it was, it was a her. very smart move, a very yeah. suave move on the part of the suffragettes. Um, but you know some authors are pointing out okay but this is also some reappropriation by Mm -hmm. these turn of the century um white people to meet their own ends right so um you can problematize that a little bit um so at the same time it's also valuable historical research reinstating a female participant who has been overlooked (laughs) up to that point right so as so much is in history it is very complicated (laughs) complicated yes (laughs) um okay so so that was kind of the first example where we really see Sacagawea hit the mainstream stage. And then another white woman comes along. Uh, again, very independent, very well-educated. Uh, her name is Grace Hebbard or Hebbard. 
and she was a white academic. Uh, she was a member of the University of Wyoming, and uh, she was no stranger to being the only woman in a man's world. <laughs> so she was uh, the f- one of the first women to serve on the university's board of trustees and the first woman admitted to the Wyoming State Bar. So very cool. Very cool. Very smart. And uh, she was in her 40s when she read The Conquest that had been published by uh, Ava Emery Dye. And it really, I guess, blew her mind. <laughs> she was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And she became enthralled by Sacagawea's story. And you can kind of see the connections between her, how she would see a connection between herself and Sacagawea, right? These sort of trailblazing women pioneers in, in this man's world. And, Absolutely. Um, so she takes it in a, another step further and in 1904 travels to the Wind River Reservation. So this is in Wyoming. And this is where reportedly um, a whole a large number of um, Shoshone natives had been relocated. So um, there's some controversy about whether Sacagawea's specific group uh, or band had been relocated there. They think sh- they might have actually gone a bit further west. Uh, so maybe everyone has kind of missed the mark on this completely. Um, but uh, nevertheless, she travels to Wind River because this is where she's heard the Shoshone have ended up. Uh, so she starts interviewing, right? Has anybody heard <laughs> perhaps about someone called Sacagawea? And uh, she starts interviewing a whole bunch of the locals and starts with the reverend. So um, one of the only uh, white people living on the reservation. And the the reverend has these memories. Oh, way back. I recall <laughs> a very old native woman and we buried her. <laughs> and uh, like, I think she could be it. So uh, the he recalled her as being called Basil's mother uh, and or the the name Wadze Weepe or Wadze Wipe, uh, quote, lost woman. So. Okay, interesting. Interesting. So you can see how Hubbard would go, ah, tell me more. (laughs) Um, So she was buried in 1884, and she had lived a long life and, uh, you know, apparently was strong and and, uh, with it right up until the end. And the character. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, And she had lived on this Wind River Reservation. Uh, so Hebbard starts doing more research, talking to more people, interviewing um, people who claim to be descendants of this woman, and starts piecing together a history of what she's hoping is Sacagawea. So she basically commits to <laughs> this argument of, okay, I think this, this really is Sacagawea. Is Sacagawea. And, yeah. and she is finding little pieces and little details that could support this, right? So we don't want to completely discredit her theory and just say, well, she was, you know, just forcing this into, into creation. Um, you know, she really had some legitimate facts that might've mm-hmm. lent credence to this. Um, but at the same time, she did kind of shoehorn it. Right. In. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah. She was just taking a lot of stories and going, oh, this, this very well could be Sacagawea. Cause it, I mean, again, you understand I'm sympathetic. I am completely right? because it is as, well. as, as, one of the sources we were reading pointed out, it is a much better story. It's a way better for Sacagawea to have lived to this ripe old age yes. and had this incredible life where, yes. you know, she had all these incredible things happen to her and was right. just a sturdy, wonderful old woman as right. opposed to the just tragic and awful ending of dying Young, at 24. In a fort yeah. with your crappy husband. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> husband. Yeah. yeah. Husband so, in quotation marks. <laughs> so the narrative that uh, Heber kind of pieces together um, is that uh, Sacagawea had left Charbonneau. Uh, they had gone to St. Louis together to to visit Clark or to, to move with Clark. Um, she leaves Charbonneau um, 
by this time, Jean Baptiste is a little older and he's being educated by Clark. So Clark kind of takes responsibility. So she leaves Jean Baptiste behind um, and apparently her daughter as well. Uh, travels to live with a Comanche group, uh, falls in love with and marries a Comanche man, has a number of more children with him, lives there for possibly a few decades um, and starts to be called para evo which means chief woman so mm. this is a testament a to her name. strong personality yes yeah. we like that uh then her second husband is killed in a battle and this is kind of her opportunity okay i can go right back to my roots and she moves to the wind river uh reservation where her shoshone people have been relocated um and then lives out the rest of her years she's got a couple of kids by her side and you know lives on into ripe old age and uh, enjoys her year free of her abusive husband and you know sort of impressing everyone around her with her strength and wisdom uh and that's what grace publishes Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. she writes this alternative narrative in the journal of american history in 1907 uh it causes a media sensation and uh, the people of Wind River Reservation uh, start gaining some credibility in their stories about the possibility that Sacagawea had lived among them and they are the descendants of Sacagawea. Uh, this starts building some credibility. And the U.S. government even sent an investigator um, right. to check this out. So, uh, And he comes back saying, oh, it seems... seems- true to me seems legit seems legit but he had talked to hebbard when he was there <laughs> so it's like well how much Where's was he getting he, his info right yeah. was he influenced by her uh sure so um hebbard fundraises and uh, i think the government chipped in some funds as well and uh, some monuments and grave markers were erected to sacajawea and her family um which are still there so you can still go today and see them claiming that she lived well into her 80s uh, so we have these two conflicting <laughs> narratives. Did she die at 24 in this yeah. fort or did she go on to live, um, happily into old age? Uh, so what happens now? So all these are published more recent scholarly work. Um, and actually during Hubbard's life, uh, came out with a couple of, of pieces of evidence that might debunk this theory she's put together. So there were two records. Um, one was the fur company that had hired Charbonneau that he had been under their employ um, this whole time uh, records one of his wives uh, dying. um, And they just refer to her as the snake squaw. And I guess snake was the the white term for Shoshone. Um, And so Hebert fires back and says, well, they never use her name. It could be the other (laughs) wife. It could be the other wife, right? (laughs) So this other poor sister wife of of Charbonneau's. Um, And so we really don't know. Right. I mean, it's a legitimate point. Um, They do not mention Sacagawea. Um, But then later they found in Clark's records, uh, he he put together just sort of a random little like where they are now list uh, in one of his cash books. It was a cash book from 1825 to 1828. He just kind of scribbles it in the book. Um, he lists all the members of the expedition. Mm -hmm. And then next to Sacagawea's name, he lists that she has died. So a lot of historians take that as, as pretty credible because this wasn't anything he was doing for a public record. He was just Mm -hmm. sort of doing it on his own. And they say, well, he wouldn't have any reason to lie, to lie or to make this up. Yeah. Well, and he Um, was, as people have pointed out, he was a pretty he took a lot of notes and mm-hmm. kept a lot of journals mm-hmm. right. and wrote down and what is a reliable right he's seen as very source. credible exactly yeah absolutely and yeah. as was pointed out as well um Sacagawea and Charbonneau did 
keep in contact with him. He had a relationship right. with her. Yes. They were at the very least friendly and he yes. adored her son. Right. right. And he people have pointed out he would definitely be in a position to know. To know. Correct. If she had died. Yes. Because there was someone else on the list. There was another member on the list and Hebert used this against the oh, evidence. Yes. Uh there's another gentleman on the list that he wrote down as dead who ended up outliving like all the other expedition <laughs> members. <laughs> so she goes, well, Clark was Screw listing that one people up. Yeah, as dead when they weren't. Um, but he had lost contact with that gentleman, mm-hmm. whereas he hadn't lost contact with Sagawea. They lived near him. Right. And, and he was raising and educating their children. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he would probably have a pretty good idea of what happened to her. So those two pieces of evidence um, kind of point to the conclusion that I think Dana and I both hold that unfortunately Sacagawea did die early an untimely death well and it does seem to be what most historians believe yeah. and yeah we don't know for sure no nope, maybe absolutely. she was that old lady mm-hmm. who yeah. had an amazing wonderful ripe right life right but um it's it, it seems like the evidence is pointing more towards the fact that she probably died in 1812. Right. right. And the people of Wind River, the reservation there themselves, certainly believe that she did. And this has kind of become a part of their oral, oral history. And so mm-hmm. we don't want to, you know, discount that. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, you know, it's... it Based on the historical record. Right. It's hard to... It's hard to... to give credit. Yeah. yeah. yeah so exactly. either way, she's this wonderful, um, adventurous... Obviously, very yeah. resilient uh, woman who participated in this uh, expedition. And well, and we should point out, too, we haven't really, I guess, the fact that, I mean, when the expedition happened, she was a teenager. She was so young. She was so young. Yeah, she was basically a kid. Yeah. With a kid. She's yeah. like a teen mom yeah. going on this transcontinental expedition. So if somebody told me, hey, I know this um, 16, 17 year old, and she's going to carry her baby that she just had while she tracks across North America, I would say they're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, working as a translator. Right. Yeah. Just- yeah, holding things together. Uncharted territory. <laughs> there's no trail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's nothing. Yeah. Absolutely. So, really, pretty, really cool. Pretty phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> so I should, uh, I was going to mention at the top of the podcast, this, <laughs> the fact that I, but now Heather, I think you can relax. Oh, no. We've covered Sacagawea because I have to point out that for the last, like, I don't know, this has been going on for like a month. Every, every once in a while, I would get a text from Heather being like, is Sacagawea on our list? Is she on our list? to possible podcast topics and put her put her on the list put her on the list, she's she's on the list. so i would Don't check forget. and and i would be like oh yeah no she's on there like i think you probably put her on as one of your first I people think she was on there twice yeah so <laughs> yeah. then yeah you text again and like oh okay i'll put her on and then like yeah she was on there twice and then like the next week i would get another text being like have we got Sacagawea on the list? Make sure she's on there. Make sure she's on there. I was like, yes. <laughs> she's on she's there. She's on there twice, Heather. <laughs> and then when, so... when Dana would ask what topic, I would be like, Sacagawea. Let's do her. <laughs> so we have covered Sacagawea. Hooray! And she certainly is a very worthy yester lady. And I am glad that we have covered her. And now Heather can sleep at night. <laughs> and now Dana can stop being pestered by my texts. <laughs> There'll be no more Sacagawea texts. I don't know. I feel like in another year, you'll be like, have we covered Sacagawea? <laughs> Forget about this experience. Have we done her? Now I'll just text you as a joke. <laughs> yeah, I know you will. <laughs> That'll be Expect awesome. That. All right. Well, I don't have anything further. Do you? Oh, that's all I wanted to say. All right. All right. Well, if you want to learn more about Sacagawea, as always, we will be posting um, some further reading mm-hmm. on our website along with the audio of this episode. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, um, we would love to hear from you for just a number of reasons we would 
would be very happy with, you know, kind criticism. Uh, we would love compliments. Yes. Send those anytime. <laughs> yes, please. Um, and also, we should point out, if you have ideas for topics, we would love to hear those because as we have just let slip, we have a list mm-hmm. and it is growing and expanding <laughs> every a, week. It's a big uh, list. <laughs> we are both adding to it and we are getting tips in our lives from the people around us for some great ladies and we will be doing some of those in the upcoming weeks and uh, that will be great but if you've got an idea please send it our way we would love to hear what you would love to hear mm-hmm. uh, so if you'd like to get in contact with us you can email us at yesterladies at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter where our handle is at yesterladies or you can go to facebook.com slash yesterladies and those are all of the ways I believe that you can contact <laughs> us and we would just love to hear from you so thank you once again for listening and I've been Dana and this is Heather thank you (laughs) 